Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Bushball. Today, we continue our conversation um, about the Pacific Coast League. Uh, we had Doug Greenwald on in the last episode to talk about kind of the legacy and the history of the Pacific Coast League. Um, now, we're going to bring on a different perspective. And that comes from Dennis Snelling. Dennis Snelling is a baseball historian and um, author. He's written extensively about the Pacific Coast League. And with the Pacific Coast League now defunct and being rebranded as AAA West, it'll be interesting to get Dennis's perspective on the history, legacy, and some of the great teams of the Pacific Coast League. So sit back and enjoy another episode of Bushball. Snelling has been a senior writer for Helmar Baseball History and Art Magazine, a member of the Society of American Baseball Research and the Pacific Coast League Historical Society. He is the author of The Greatest Minor League, A History of the Pacific Coast League, 1903 to 1957, and Johnny Evers, A Baseball Life, and more recently, Lefty O'Doul, Baseball's Forgotten Ambassador. Dennis, welcome to Bushball. Oh, thanks for having me. I really kind of Dennis as an expert in this area, and I just wanted to start by asking you, why do you think the golden era of the PCL was during that period between 1903 and 1958? Well, I think the Pacific Coast League was a very different league. It, it developed as an outlaw to begin with. The California State League of the late 1890s had kind of had an outlaw uh, existence. And when it morphed into the Pacific Coast League by stealing franchises Seattle and Portland from the Pacific Northwest League, um, they again were an outlaw. And they had a really in, a real independent streak. They were they were geographically isolated. Uh, you hmm. didn't have teams west of the Mississippi until uh, the 1950s in Kansas City that moved a little bit west. And they uh, really had a monopoly on the talent out here. So they signed a lot of their own players. They signed Joe DiMaggio and his brother. Mm. They signed Ted Williams. They signed Paul Wehner and Mickey Cochran and Lefty Gomez and Ernie Lombardi. These were people they signed. And because there was decent money to be made in the league, and there wasn't a whole the kind of money in sports today, the gap wasn't as big. And so players could come back towards the end of their careers after they played in the majors, come back and play in the Pacific Coast League mm -hmm. uh, and make decent money. And the mm -hmm. travel was good. The weather was good. You played a week in one city and then moved on to the next. Generally, it was a, a uh, the schedule was Tuesday through Sunday with a doubleheader on Sunday. Monday was a travel day. So it was a great place to play. The travel, to, you know, wasn't, you know, geographically, it, there weren't a lot of long trips hmm. and players could extend their career. And it was an unusual league in that winning meant something here. 
uh, mm. in the Coast League. You saw rivalries that, you know, the Angels and Stars are the one, the Seals yeah. and Oaks. And and these teams really fought each other, and, and winning a pennant meant something, which is different than what the minor leagues morphed into uh, later uh, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, the major league teams did not own these minor league teams or run them uh, there were some working agreements here and there, but they were kind of sporadic. And uh, the Pacific Coast mm-hmm. League was able to financially be independent and uh, and and develop a lot of great players. Very interesting. Yeah, it, it seems as though the PCL kind of served as not only a launching pad, but also a landing spot, you know, for for guys and launching pad for guys like Joe DiMaggio and and maybe uh, maybe a landing spot for for players like Lefty O'Doul and some of those players who are at the end of their careers. Very interesting, Dennis. Um, and yeah, the 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 way that because I I almost feel like that the PCL was was not really and, and correct me if I'm wrong was not viewed as a minor league team, almost like the West Coast majors, you know, during that period. Well, I think definitely the fans felt that way. This was mm, their major right. league. Now, they did see, you did have major leaguers who would come. There was a rather robust winter league, especially in the 20s before the Depression. And mm. uh, Ty Cobb uh, was really good friends with one of the owners of the, uh, the San Francisco Seals, uh, George Putnam, mm. who was a, a Sacramento newspaper man. And they, they, uh, Tykov, Harry Heilman, who was from San Francisco, uh, Rogers Hornsby, uh, mm-hmm. they would come out and and form like a winter league, four league team, and there would be some uh, four team league, and there would be some major leaguers who'd come and make some extra money in the off season. You know, there wasn't so much money that these guys could go without working in the winter, and and, and so they they needed to, to work to eat. And so they'd come out, and it was a good way to make some money. So people on the West Coast were familiar with major league players. They'd seen them, but they didn't. But it wasn't an everyday occurrence. Like, you know, there wasn't television at the time. Even radio wasn't a big deal, if you're talking the 20s and the 30s, as far as the major leagues. And so these people grew up with these teams and, and had a couple, three decades to develop those and and. A lot of these guys had played in the major leagues or went mm. up to the major leagues and came back. And you had a couple owners who would get contracts used to be looser, would actually sign major leaguers after the major league season was over and come, hey, finish the regular season with us. And, mm. and so it, it, it was a very interesting, different uh, organization, even from the beginning. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, I know that the PCL had approached MLB in the past to be recognized as a third major league. Can you talk about that process? Well, there really was a fight about that. And uh, it kind of culminated in the the 50s where the the Pacific Coast League threatened to go outlaw again. They voted unanimously, actually, but they weren't Mm going to allow their players. They were going to drop out of the National Association uh, and not be a part of organized baseball if they didn't mm-hmm. uh, get some concession. You had some owners who had some money. Paul Fagan, who uh, had married into the Crocker family uh, in San Francisco. You had George Norgan, who was a, a 
and Emil Sick, who were both big in liquor. And of course, you had the Wrigley family. But then you had people like Bill Lane in San Diego, and you had uh, the Sacramento ownership, which which bounced around for many years, and Rick Laws in Oakland, who had a theater chain, but just a local theater chain, and they just didn't have the means. And the ballparks were not up to standard. They were not major league caliber ballparks. So it would have taken a lot of capital to do that. And uh, and I think the major leagues, all they had to do was swoop in like they did. I've always thought might have been interesting to see if if they would have integrated in the 30s before the major leagues were ready. Could they have shown enough talent to do something there? But I think mm-hmm. ultimately the major leagues would just not have have allowed it. And I think fans would always love to see these bigger names. They're, they're going to want to see the, you know, as much as they love sure. uh, Buzz Arlatt or Jigger Stats, hey, seeing Babe Ruth or, right. you know, yeah. uh, there's no comparison. So right. I don't think the major leagues would have allowed it. Again, you had owners that pushed for it, and occasionally uh, I think the closest they would come is exempting their players from the draft, and you had some players who Chuck Connors was actually the first in the 1950s. <laughs> right. He signed a contract that uh, kept him from being able to be drafted. And mm. I think Dick Sisler was soon after that. There were many players who preferred playing out here because in some cases they could make more money, and they were not yeah. guys that – we're going to be stars in the major leagues. So mm-hmm. they could be starters out here and play and, and uh, have opportunities to, to make money and, and fly yeah. their trade and then make a good living. So the major leagues finally gave them what was called open classification. Uh, this also yeah. was part of, uh, there was uh, some congressional hearings uh, on baseball antitrust around that time. This is the early 50s. I think there was a congressman named Emanuel Seller who was uh, having hearings, and that kind of prompted the first moving uh, of major league teams to other cities. So the the Browns moved to Baltimore, the Braves uh, uh, moved to Milwaukee. You you finally had, for the first time in 50 years, some teams uh, moving to some of these cities that were large now and and couldn't get major league clubs. And so in the backdrop of that, the major leagues gave this concession and said, okay, we're going to create this classification above AAA. Your players can be exempt from the draft if they've, until they've been uh, five-year veterans. And then there were qualifications to become a third major league but they kind of mm. set them so high it wasn't going to happen. So they had to have a certain amount of attendance. They had to have all their ballparks had to have a certain capacity. Mm. Um, they had to set up a pension plan for players. That wasn't as big a problem. But uh, they couldn't really meet the stadium or the attendance. I think they had to draw $3.5 which I think they'd done once. But by the mid-1950s, mm. minor league attendance was dropping like a rock. Mm. and. Uh, they they weren't going to make it, and it basically just stalled time until the major leagues could come out and deal L.A. and San Francisco, kind of the same way the Coast League had started out by taking the two cities in the Northwest. So hmm. kind of got what goes around comes around, I guess, and that was kind of the sure. end of that era of the Pacific Coast League. So they there was an effort, and, and there were some – some uh, developments in that area, but I really don't think the major leagues was ever going to really a 
allow it to happen. And I'm not sure the Coast League didn't have enough owners with deep enough pockets, I think, to pull mm-hmm. it off. Um, sure. Too many teams, uh, about half the teams were undercapitalized. And I think if they'd had a couple, three more owners who were ambitious and had enough money, they might have been able to put a little more pressure on and right. maybe create expansion. I don't know that the Coast League itself, but per- perhaps teams would have been added and sort of like the ABA going in with the NBA, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe three or four teams from out here could have been added uh, instead of a straight expansion. Uh, mm. I think that would have been the most likely outcome. Wow. Okay. Well said. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, the, that open concept, when I read about that, I'd never heard of that. And I think that, that, that was just, were they the only league that ever received that designation? Das? Yes. Yeah. They, they were unique in that. No other league ever got that designation. Mm, very good. Okay. So um, I know you've done extensive research about left field duel. Um, former PCL uh, alum and, and MLB player, course legend. Um, what do you think his legacy is to the PCL? Well, Lefty, for certain stretches of time, was really the face of the PCL, especially in San Francisco. Um, mm-hmm. He's, I believe, the only player who actually played in the league in five different decades. He had five different uh, runs out there um, from 1917, he made his debut in uh, with the Seals. I think he was with the Seals five different times. Went up to the Yankees, barely played, came back. Uh, he started as a pitcher, just wasn't good enough as a pitcher. Everybody tried to turn him into an outfielder, and he was kind of stubborn about it. And then finally <laughs> acquiesced when he was about 28 years old and became a star hitter. Mm. And then went back to the majors and, of course, won two batting titles, including inning 398 one season, and then came back after his major league career was over and he was 38, played for San Francisco again as a player manager, mostly pinch hitting. Uh, he actually hit uh, pinch hit home runs at both ends of a double header once. Uh, he was like 41 years old. And then, uh, <laughs> wow. of course, managed for for 20-something seasons in the Coast League, winning over 2,000 games as a manager. and uh, Capped it off his last at bat as a player was in 1956. He was 59 years old and hit a pinch hit triple in a game. And, uh, wow. It was kind of a joke. It was kind of a joke game, but he oh, did was the it? ball okay. over the outfielders. Yeah, <laughs> the Pacific Coast League had kind of a tradition of their last uh, day of the season. They would have some fun. Uh, and so they, they would... Coaches like play or whatever. He wasn't on the actual sure. roster that year, but they kind of would look the other way. And and he did hit a ball over the outfielder's head and and uh, hit a triple and then ended up scoring a run. Uh, you know, he stayed in the game and scored on a single or whatever and then said he finally figured out the secret to hitting. It's to make the other guys laugh so hard that they can't chase the ball down <laughs> before you can get the third. So, but That's, that's one I way to do it. <laughs> Yeah, so I think I think his legacy is the a lot of the players he developed, mm-hmm. uh, especially when he came back and managed with the Seals. Um, you know, he he sent Joe D to the majors. Now Joe DiMaggio, he didn't have a lot to do with him as a player, 
It was more getting him prepared for what major league life was like. He'd already been sold to the Yankees and spent an extra year in San Francisco, kind of recovering from a knee injury he had in 34 that some people thought would end his career. Uh, but in 1933, as an 18-year-old, he had a 61-game hitting streak in the Coast. Yes. Uh, he, he was a gifted player almost from the beginning. And uh, so Lefty's job was really to prepare him for what Major League life, especially in New York, because Lefty had been there, uh, what yeah. it was going to be like. And he was the only one that I would get answers from both pitchers and, and non-pitchers that they liked him as a manager because he'd been a pitcher. Mm. He would help anybody. Uh, he was mm. a tremendous hitting coach and pitching coach and a, and a psychological coach. Um, he really thought confidence was everything and tried mm. to make players confident in themselves. But his real legacy really lays in what he did in Japan and, and all yeah. that, which you get into in the, in the book there and, and taking, uh, he was, he was, uh, very instrumental in taking Babe Ruth over in 1934. And then 15 years later, Douglas MacArthur asked him to kind of help heal the relations between the U.S. and Japan in 1949. Then he took the San Francisco Seals over for a barnstorming tour there. And uh, he was their favorite outside of Babe Ruth. And, and the Babe had passed by that right. time. And, and uh, Lefty just always had an affinity for Japan and the Japanese. And they loved him. Numbers of people. And they loved him. And Right. Uh, so that's really, to me, uh, the legacy. And, and I'd love to mm. see him get the Buck O'Neill Award at some point. I think he really deserves it uh, from the Hall of Fame. Uh, he's in the Japanese Baseball Hall of Fame, even. That's how much they yeah. loved him and recognized his contribution to helping found Japanese professional baseball and just the influence that he had in and encouraging them to play and absolutely the America is different. And, uh, you know, he really played in a, uh, he was really a baseball ambassador to them. Yes. And for listeners out there, if you get a chance, um, the book is titled lefty O'Doul baseball's forgotten ambassador, um, by Dennis Snelling. And it's, it, it really does. And it was something that I wasn't even aware of. And and I love baseball and I love history of baseball, but you know, it it I think that that I think your title suits it. He was the forgotten ambassador, you know, and so um, it's a great story and it's an important story because um, our league, you know, when I say our league, I mean MLB, has really started to depend on um, players coming from. Um, you know, places like Japan and now, you know, uh, South Korea. And, and so it's, it's, it's a pipeline and he opened, he laid the, the groundwork for it. So with the recent restructuring of minor league baseball, the PCLs being, you know, what I'm saying, rebranded as AAA West. And I know there's not much we can do about it, Dennis, but I wanted you to explain your thoughts on the rebranding? Well, it'll be interesting to see where it ends up. I, my understanding is that they'll rename it at some point. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how you market. Uh, I look at the old California league and how do you market yourself as, Hey, everybody come out and see games in the, the low a league West. I, I don't, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, right. 
everything has a beginning and an end, but I, I don't know why. I think nine of the ten teams in the AAA West are Pacific Coast League teams anyway. Um, I don't know why you can't go back to that name, even if it's not really the same league, if you've really disbanded it. Sure. Well, things change, I guess, if, if True. this is... Uh, I, I think you lose the romanticism and the history that uh, you could build on. The, the major leagues have dominated the minors for so long mm-hmm. that uh, I'm not sure that... Uh, but this isn't wasn't inevitable. I think it was just sudden. Mm. I, I just it just hurt me, <laughs> you know, when I saw that rebranding of all those great leagues. You know, the the, the International League and all, I think the Carolina League. Got, they all got rebranded, right? Yeah, that's my understanding. So, and and you know, I I don't know that. Like I said, maybe it won't stick. Maybe it'll bring those names yeah. back. Yeah. I don't I don't know that they're going to stay with. The, I don't think they're going to stay with AAA West, AAA East, but I don't know. I don't. I really don't know what the politics are sure. or what their ultimate aims are, other than they must feel that financially this is in their interest. And I don't know. Maybe the success of the in, of these independent leagues do something about that because they brought a few of the of those teams in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, like St. Paul Saints and couple other teams that were actually on in the independent league, they brought them in, which is kind of interesting. So yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm just not as, as up on what the politics of the current major league owners are other than, you know, usually follow the money. Sure. Sure. And, and, you know, I was talking to Doug Greenwald and we were talking about how minor league baseball ceases to exist maybe minor league baseball holds the licensing to the name Pacific coast league. And maybe there was something to do with, maybe it was a licensing issue. I don't know. I hope they work it out though and get it branded right because AAA West just does not, I don't think do it for fans. I'm a fan and it really doesn't do it for me. It doesn't give me any kind of, like you said, geographical idea of where these leagues might be. Okay. It's West. Well, West can be, a lot of different places. Um, and right. so I hope they really, really reconsider. And it's, it's, I guess it just remains to be seen. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but I Absolutely. don't think, I think one thing that's not going to change is going to be the major league stranglehold on, on the minors. I think that's, <laughs> no. that's done. That's a death grip. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to let that go. And, and wow. that's a fight okay. that's been going on. And that, yeah. Yeah, that goes back to the Pacific Coast League wanting to become a major league. I mean, this is a fight that's yeah. been going on since the 1920s. Sure. And I think the major leagues has just declared victory. I, I think so. And I I blame, you know, Kennesaw Mountain Landis for it. Cause he, <laughs> he was pretty yeah. <laughs> he's easy. He's an easy target. I know, but, but I blame sure. him. <laughs> so, um, we had a guy in town by the name of George Mandish, and he played many years in the PCL. I know he played a stint with the 1939 Hollywood Stars. Um, can you give a little history about the Stars? I do a team of a, the week each week, and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick the Hollywood Stars, a PCL team, and I was hoping that you could give us a little history about the Stars and 
particularly their rivalry with the LA Angels? Sure. The, the, the franchise actually started out in Vernon, California, which is, <laughs> uh, it's in LA, the LA area. It's an industrial area. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was a PCL expansion team in 1909. The Pacific Coast League had shrunk to four teams after the San Francisco earthquake. Um, they lost Seattle and Sacramento. And so they were down to LA, San Francisco, Oakland, and Portland for, uh, from in 1907 and 1908. So they went back to six teams by adding a second team, Los Angeles, and bringing Sacramento back. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea being San Francisco, they wanted what was called continuous baseball, which meant that when one team was out of town, the other team would be there and fans would always have a baseball game to go to if they mm-hmm. were in the larger cities of, of LA and San Francisco. Okay. The team uh, went through, uh, they were there for until 1925. They actually uh, won a couple pennants uh, and were actually owned for a short time by Fatty Arbuckle. Mm. Um, the film star, uh, Buster mm-hmm. Keaton used to come out and play, uh, practice games and stuff with them. Uh, this is when the movies first started getting big and, mm-hmm. um, they had some success, but when, uh, William Wrigley bought the Los Angeles angels in 1921, uh, that kind of, he didn't really want, uh, the Vernon team there. And so when he built Wrigley field in 1925, he refused to let, Vernon play there, which kind of sealed their fate. They were, Mm. even though they'd been winning, they kind of had a downturn and, and uh, couldn't compete. They were definitely the second team in LA. So uh, Wrigley brokered a deal with a banker named Herbert Fleischacker to move the the team to San Francisco. And he turned around and brought a team from Salt Lake city and allowed them to play in Wrigley Field. And they were the first Hollywood team. I call them the Sheiks. They were sometimes called the Sheiks. Oh, yeah. Sometimes yeah, called the that. Stars. Right. And they had some success, too. And they played until uh, they moved to San Diego and became the original Padres. And mm-hmm. Signed Ted Williams and all that. So right. when the... Uh, Vernon team moved to San Francisco. They were called the missions. And so now you had two teams in San Francisco and they shared uh, first recreation park. And then in 31, when seal stadium was built, they shared that stadium with the seals. But again, they couldn't draw. They were the second banana. And uh-huh. town. you also had Oakland. So you had three teams right there and they just never right. really created an identity. They had some interesting players. Ernie Nevers played with them, the football star or baseball player. Two, hmm. uh, one of the first two sports stars. They had Ike Boone, who was a tremendous hitter. Ox Eckhart, who won like four batting titles, hit over 400 a couple of times in the Coast League. They had some interesting players, but they never really caught on. And so mm-hmm. uh, in 1938, they moved back to, uh, once the Hollywood Sheiks had moved to San Diego, that opened up a spot, and they moved down to uh, L.A., they, the first year they shared Wrigley Field, which the Angels weren't real happy with, and then they built their own uh, ballpark, Gilmore Field, actually in Hollywood. The, so the, so they became the Hollywood Stars. Bob Cobb bought them the second year they were down. So the next year, Bob mm-hmm. Cobb, who owned the Brown Derby, he bought the team. 
I uh, got a bunch of movie stars who were uh, who became part owners with them. Uh, just about every big name Hollywood person was there, and they'd all come to the games. They'd have. Uh, I remember hearing about Desi Arnaz and Lucy Lucille Ball had their own seats with little placards on them. Humphrey Bogart would be at games, and Gary Cooper, and all these big stars would just be wandering around. Bob Cobb really made it an event. Kind of ironically brought him back to what the original Vernon Tigers were when they were involved with movie stars and stuff. He just ramped sure. it. They worked it out with L.A. where they had a 20-year contract where they could share the town, share the territory, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which ran out in 1957. But uh, they did create a pretty good rivalry, and the, they had some amazing fights. The biggest was in 1953. They had a brawl that ended up in Life magazine. Uh, it ended up being such a big brawl. It was kind of a three-day event, and started <laughs> with uh, it started with uh, an angel player uh, going high in third base with a start with a star's third baseman that emptied the benches on a Friday. Mm-hmm. Frank Kelleher then won the game with a pinch hit single. Then he won the Saturday game. So Sunday he was kind of a marked man. And Joe Hatton was pitching for the Angels. And after Kelleher had a single, a run scoring single in the first inning of the Sunday game, um, he started throwing at his head. Kelleher responded with a triple. So the next time up, Hatton just decided to drill him. He drilled Kelleher. Kelleher went out to the mound. They got into a fight, emptied the benches. Well, they were thrown out of the game. So uh, a guy named Ted Beard was sent in to pinch run for Kelleher. Well, he went in spikes high at third base against a guy named Murray Franklin, who just joined the Angels and used to be with the Stars. That emptied the benches. Bill Parker, who's the chief of police in Los Angeles, is watching the game on TV. He sends all the all the police down there, and they basically cleared the benches. Nobody could be on the bench. Everybody had to be in the clubhouse unless you were in the game. And if they started fighting again, the game was over. It was a doubleheader that day. <laughs> uh, so it, but the pictures of that were ended up being published in Life magazine. That was the kind of wow. rivalry they had. They, uh, you know, the very last fight they ever had involved Tommy Lasorda. Uh, he was pitching for the Angels in 1957. The very last game they played against each other was throwing at a guy named Spook Jacobs. Jacobs then retaliated by bunting down the first baseline, and Lasorda, instead of fielding the ball, just went and and did a uh, like a lineman laying him flat <laughs> as he ran to first base. Uh, oh, Tommy! That was kind of the, the last brawl that uh, that the two teams had. But they had a number of. They were both very successful in the late '40s and early '50s. They basically mm-hmm. traded pennants most years, and uh, the fans got into it. It was a quite a yeah. quite a rivalry. Yeah, you you wouldn't think that people from L.A. would be that fired up. That sounds like something that happened in no. like Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, I would I would say if you're talking Southern California, that's as hot a rivalry as there ever was in sports down there. Wow. Yeah, and I remember I read about that fight. You know, where the police basically had to declare like martial law on the field. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, yeah, pretty so much. Yeah. pretty much it, it, uh, it got pretty wild, but that Tommy Lasorda story is just hilarious because that, that just sounds like something Tommy might do, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. well, there it is. You guys are our, our team of the week, the Hollywood stars. And, you know, Dennis, I really appreciate your time tonight. And I know I kept you over the 30 minutes. I said, I told you I, I lie about these things. But, um, you know, I, you're just a wealth of knowledge and, um, you know, I know that my, our, our listeners are going to enjoy it. Um, can't thank you enough for coming on, uh, Dennis sure. Snelling, everybody, if you haven't had a chance, um, go out and, and grab one of his books. They're just, uh, super, super well researched. And, um, if you want to understand the golden era of the PCL, then you've got to grab a Dennis Snelling book. And so thanks again, Dennis. Oh, you're, you're welcome. And, uh, I, you know what I may be, <laughs> if you'll ever talk to me again, cause I kept you so long, but if I, if I ever, if I ever need you on again, I hope I can call you up and bend your ear and, uh, uh, get, get some more stories from you. No, I'd be happy to. I love minor leagues. I do a lot of research on the minor leagues. It was great having Dennis on today. I knew that bringing him on would give us a different perspective from a historian, author, someone who's written extensively about the Pacific Coast League and and has a real deep understanding and knowledge of the minor league system. I hope to have Dennis on again so that we can kind of branch out into some of those other areas that our conversation um, kind of wandered to. Um, Anyway, great guest. Uh, Really appreciate him coming on. If you enjoyed today's podcast, remember to subscribe. Uh, We always enjoy feedback. So if you can leave us a review, that would be fantastic too. Have a great day, everybody. 